Welcome to Alameda Community Radio's News and Views. I'm your host, Susan Gallimore, and I'll be with you for this hour-long view into the workings and goings-on in our city of Alameda. Alameda Citizens Task Force, ACT, is a new group with the mission to protect the quality of life for Alamedans by promoting open government and encouraging community involvement and advocating for fiscal responsibility. Recently, Alameda Citizens Task Force presented one of their quarterly events designed to fulfill their mission. It was called Land Grab or Fab Plan, a public forum examining facts behind the golf swap, who benefits, who pays. And it addressed Ron Cowan's proposed swap of the Milf Albright golf course. Now, I attended and recorded the event, although it was close to two hours long, and I edited it to include a concise picture of the entire issue. You will hear from former Golf Commissioner Bob Wood, current Golf Commissioner Jane Sulwald, and also Robert Sulwald. As I say, the meeting was about two hours long, and if you want an unedited CD of the entire presentation, you can email me at alamedacommunityradio at gmail.com. I also talked to Dave Needle, who's been involved with the issue for years, and he presents his view on this show on what the land swap is about. His view is based on meetings he's attended in the past. Bob Needle was not part of the ACT event, but um, as I say, he's, he's very conversant with the issue, and I wanted to also include his view, and you'll hear him towards the end of the show. Now, this issue of the land swap has been going on for years and may be coming closer to being resolved. The question is, how will it be resolved? I hope that this show shines light on the complex subject with uh, years of history. Now, former Golf Commissioner Bob Wood begins the show with a description of the layout of the courses. First, keep in mind that these golf courses had attendance from between 230 and 240,000 rounds a year. That's a high enough attendance to warrant a mention in the Wall Street Journal. And up until 2001, revenues were good, although they fell after that and continued to fall through the 2006 fiscal year, when Bob Wood was no longer commissioner. Reasons for this drop are competition from growing number of uh, competing courses in the area, a lack of banquet space at the clubhouse, increased rainfall, a general malaise in the golf industry, and stale courses and and an unattractive clubhouse, as well as deteriorating infrastructure, too. Now, we'll hear from Bob Wood, as I say. Here he is. Here's what we have at at the golf complex, 320 acres uh, of parkland with two 18-hole championship courses, one nine-hole par three course. That's the MIF course that's in question. We have a clubhouse, a pro shop, and a restaurant, 46-stall driving range, which is lit at night, eight lakes, and a number of sloughs, which are are drainage, primarily stormwater drainage for the course. We have 24 buildings and structures out there, tons of green trees, plus roads and parking cart paths, fencing restrooms, retaining walls, site lighting, irrigation, lots of infrastructure. That means that this place has been expensive to operate, but it has been completely self-sustaining for decades. And most of us, at least those of us who hang around golf course, would tell you it is self-sustaining to this moment. The legacy of the golf course. This place has been here for 87 years, I believe, or at least the Golf Commission was established about that long ago. And a couple years after that, the the Earl Fry North Course was built, as well as the old clubhouse, which is now the what you know is the Grandview Pavilion, a catering and banquet facility uh, on Island Drive. The Alameda Golf Club, which is sometimes known as the Men's Club, was established very early on. 
as was the famous Alameda Commuters Tournament, one of the top amateur tournaments in Northern California. The Women's Golf Club was not far behind in 1929. The Jack Clark course built in 1957. The driving range in 59 and remodeled and updated in 97. And the Miff Albright course built in-house by staff in 82. Junior Golf Club established in 91. The Norma Arnish Training Center in 97. And the Seniors Club, our most, our most recent addition in 2004. So here's a graph of how we earned our money. In fiscal year 2004-2005, there was $4.3 million worth. By far the greatest uh, revenue that we had came from daily play. These were golfers that just show up and pay a fee and play. Uh, what were our expenses? Where did the money go? The biggest cost was personnel. Uh, labor benefits for city staff workers out there and then supplies and services but money that was taken out of the, of the enterprise above the bottom line by the city for primarily three uh, kinds of uh, uses one, one was called cost allocation another one was a surcharge on every round of golf that was played and then payment in lieu of taxes and return on investment we had attempted for 15 years to find a way to get a better clubhouse out there to increase business and went through various schemes and various cost estimates and feasibility studies and as you know if you've been out there recently that's still unaccomplished then for a while we thought well let's try to get a banquet hall and put up a temporary slash permanent type of tent structure called a sprung structure and we could seat as many as 213 people which would satisfy a full tournament. Uh, we had a site, a good site for it I think between the, the uh, restaurant kitchen and the driving range and we could service it that way and we could use it not just for golf tournaments but for weddings and other appropriate functions. In 2007 then we prioritized some things and applied them to the map again, the banquet center and clubhouse improvements the uh, site entry improvements, the cart paths that are needed to this day on the Ural Fry course, get the sloughs and the lakes properly dredged, and to then to annually rebuild four green complexes so that we could in increase the uh, playability of the course. Uh, here are the three items that I talked about. The cost allocation plan, which is in, in many cases very justifiable money for the city to take out to pay other department members who perform services for the golf course business. For instance, the city attorney, the city manager, the risk management. Uh, there are any number of people who get assigned a percentage, not based necessarily on a number of hours they spend at the, at the golf course business, but on a predetermined uh, consultant-based formula, a uh, percentage formula. And so 400000 came out in fiscal year of four and 05, another 400000 for the payment in lieu of taxes, which is uh, the rationale is that the city says we own the property. If this were a private business, we'd be collecting taxes. We're not collecting taxes, so therefore we should get some money. And since it's a business, they want to return on their investment. The total net year was close to a million dollars. And this last slide of the a graph of how much money was taken out and gone to the city for other funds and and general fund in those past 11 years, and it totaled 8.7 million dollars. And that money has continued to be taken out 
um, in the four years that I haven't been involved. Our duty as uh, commissioners was to advise the council, and so we advised them and appealed to them to relieve us of these the enterprise fund from surcharges, payment in lieu of taxes, return on investment, and to temper the cost allocation plan so that we would have money to, to, to do some capital improvement plans out there which are much needed. Um, I can't say that we ever got a very specific reply, but things did change in that uh, I think that the golf operation then swung over to the Recreation and Parks Department so that the general manager no longer reported directly to the city manager. Uh, Kemper Sports out of Chicago was brought in as a operator, as a uh, management on a one-year interim basis, and, and that contract has been continued for a number of years since until the city can get responses to a request for proposal for a long-term operating management contract with a golf um, outside golf management company. So we no longer have many city employees out there at all. Most of them are now Kemper employees, perhaps all of them, all of them, and at a much reduced cost. So we are we have realized the benefit of that. I just want to switch out of the golf course side of it and talk about the deal that's being proposed here and what some of the background is for that. In 1989, Harbor Bay Isle and the city of Alameda entered into what's called a, a, a development agreement. By that point, Harbor Bay Isle had installed almost all of the infrastructure in that housing area out there and, and in the business park, the roads, the utilities, a lot of stuff went in, the lagoons, and a lot of the housing areas had already been built. But there was some question as to how many, how many units of housing maximum would uh, be allowed to be built out there. And so there, this development agreement came into being and gave Harbor Bay Isle a maximum of 3,200 units. So the building went on and on, and eventually uh, there wasn't any more land to develop in what we think of as the residential part, and Harbor Bay Isle was short 227 units. They, in 2004, then applied for a new housing area that would have been kind of on the edge of the business park and uh, adjacent to an area called Islandia housing area. They had 12.2 acres there. These are sites that, that uh, straddle the kinder care. And there was some opposition to this plan immediately, I think maybe even from staff or from public. And it took three years before the city and Harbor Bay Isle entered into a settlement agreement, a legal document, and immediately Pete's Coffee, who was uh, an adjacent neighbor of the site, objected or had been objecting all along, but Pete's and others filed suit against the city because of this settlement agreement. It went to court, the city prevailed, and the story is that the California Superior Court in the process of their decision also updated the validity of the 1989 development agreement so that Harbor Bay Isle could build 3,200 units. Uh, and and right. Jane will talk to that on her 10 minutes. <laughs> she has a very interesting opinion on it, which I think is worth reading. And let me tell you at the bottom here, the source for all of this, I'm reading from the public documents that are on the city's website and much of it's coming directly from Harbor Bay Isle because I, don't, I can't find a lot of this uh, from our staff reports. 
so anyway, uh, so the that's a, this is Harbor Bay Isles claim, but it's in writing. They say that the city managers, past city managers, uh, approached the city with a vision, and the vision was to swap the land that they were going to build Village Six on out in the business park with the Miff Albright course. Here's here's some of the things that are in the documents that I found, which I, I certainly would say to be corrected. The projected cost for or renovating the 36 holes at the golf complex and the driving range and to put in a new MIF course to replace the one is somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 8 to $10 million, I guess. The soccer and baseball fields would cost maybe another million and a half, although when I add up the numbers, I get something larger than that. And the funding sources, I'm not entirely clear on, except that Harbor Bay Isle is very clear that they're offering $5 million for this. Um, and Wadsworth, who is a private uh, company who's devoted to junior golfing, has offered, it's a, it's a nonprofit um, who's offering $50,000 a year of over five years to apply toward the MIF course. And then the Golf Enterprise Fund still has probably $100,000 left in it. Well, the council has committed to this because Wadsworth insisted on it. And then there's the long-term lease payments that you would get from Kemper or whoever gets the contract for the long-term operation of the, uh, of the golf course. Uh, so the procedure is complicated. Here's what has to happen. There is a draft memorandum of understanding, an MOU, drafted by Harbor Bay Isle to the city. Um, and if that's signed up with, with the city, then they would very soon after enter into a property exchange agreement, which would then kick off the process and the city would start preparation of an environmental review. And then after that, there would be processing of, of the EIR according to California Invo Environmental Quality Act uh, standards. And then there would have to be general a plan amendment to these two properties. Let's say the, the uh, the North Loop Road property and the MIF site, you'd have to have a general plan amendment or a couple of them and a couple or three or four rezonings and only then would Harbor Bay Isle uh, submit for review by the planning board a vested tentative map and maybe a planned development. So all that has to take place and that's probably going to take quite a while, um, a year, year and a half, who knows, two years. And then, this, then the um, part of the scheme is that Harbor Bay Isle eventually, if they gained all these approvals, would take ownership of the MIF Albright course as their Village 6 housing site, and then they would put it up for sale. They would put it up to sale to a builder or a developer who would then come in and finalize and fine-tune the, the design according to what the market conditions were at the time. And um, only then, upon that sale, would the $5 million pass from Harbor Bay Isle to the city. And Harbor Bay Isle would be out of, the, out of the deal. Kemper has said that they could start construction on this uh, in late 2012 or 2013, but it really depends on getting the approvals and the processes. And they've also said that they'll keep 27 holes of the, of the current 36 open during the construction period. That was former Golf Commissioner Bob Wood with a good overview of the course and a brief history of how the land swap discussion came about. Now, Jane Sulwald is the current Golf Commissioner. Good evening. 
Mayor Gilmore actually put it right on the last council meeting that we had on this on July 12th. This is all about money. We have a golf complex that is sadly in need of renovations. It's been in need of renovations for a long time. Nothing at all really has been done over the last 10 or 12 years at the golf complex. The uh, courses are deteriorating in terms of the infrastructure, the uh, uh, watering system, the uh, drainage systems, the cart paths are, are crumbling apart. Everything needs to be done out there and the problem is there is no money. As Bob's uh, slides pointed out, the city has been taking the top line revenue from the golf complex for at least 15 years, if not longer. In the last 10 years, the city has taken approximately $10 million out of golf complex revenues and put it into the general fund. That is unfortunately more than we have generated in revenues and so consequently our enterprise fund, which was once millions of dollars, has now dwindled down to something around of half a million dollars, which is barely enough to sustain us uh, if we continue paying the city. We don't, therefore, have the money in our enterprise fund to make the improvements. Kemper, which has been the interim manager for several years now, and which, based in my opinion on deceptive acts toward the city, has gotten the bid to become the long-term uh, less, less E of the golf complex. Uh, Kemper's plan right now is to put $500,000 out initially to do capital improvements and then to fund additional capital improvements out of revenues as they are generated over the next 10 years. The problem with that is we don't have any guarantee that they will generate revenues. Uh, during the last several years when they've been in management of the golf complex, the revenues unfortunately have gone down. The only reason that they're at all profitable is because they've drastically reduced the labor costs. But in terms of revenues, this year, the, the fiscal year that ended on June 30th, 2010, the revenues were actually quite depressing. I think that they were less than they were projected to be. And so we don't have a guarantee that if Kemper takes over that they're going to generate the revenues that will enable us to do capital improvements. Then what do we have? Well, we have various members of city council who have said emphatically over and over and over again that the city will not fund the golf complex. That if the golf complex runs out of money, the city is not going to dip into its general fund to start paying the operating expenses of the golf complex. And frankly, I can understand why they're taking that point because if you've listened to any of the speeches about city finances and listened to the two Kevins, our city financial picture is not very bright right now. We have not funded a lot of uh, unpaid uh, pension liabilities for our public safety officers. We have a lot of problems financially and that I think if the city wanted to fund the golf complex, I don't think the money is there to do it and I suspect that the public support is not there in the community of Alameda. So the question is, where do we get the money to improve our golf complex so that it can go on for another 80 some years? Well, I don't like to say this, but we've got a source of money that is out there and is being proposed. And although I would vastly prefer leaving our complex the way it is, with the Miff Albright course where it is, with the two 18-hole courses where they are, 
Unfortunately, we don't have the money to do that, and I suspect that if we tried to do it in the next five years, we'd end up having courses closed because of lack of infrastructure and lack of capital improvements. So we've got Doric and Harbor Bay Isle coming in with their plan, which had been behind the scenes for the last three years and now is finally out in the open. And as Bob pointed out, they want to exchange their North Loop Road property for the Miff Albright land. Then what they would do is reconfigure the front line of the Jack Clark course to make it shorter and tighter. And then they would use the land that is freed up to build a new par three course close to the clubhouse. I think that there's some problems with the plan. I don't think the plan by any means is perfect. I actually, I'm going to usurp what Pam Curtis uh, called me about last week and suggest that maybe another option would be instead of building an entire short par three course, maybe what you build is three practice holes. You build a par three practice hole, a par four practice hole, a par five practice hole with three different sets of tees on each one so that if somebody just wanted to come out and practice three holes, they could do that. If somebody wanted to play nine holes short, they could go around three times and play each of the different tees on each hole. You could also build then a, a teaching practice facility that Joe has been talking about, a teaching academy. You can build that. You can build in a short practice green, a chipping area, a sand area. You can do the, all that in less space than what Harbor Bay is designing for their new par three course. And that would allow us to have more land to reconfigure the front nine of the Clark course to eliminate some of the safety concerns that you'll hear Bob talk about a little bit later. So I think all of these things are up in the air, but they can be tinkered with. They can come up with better solutions but let's talk about the money. Harbor Bay Isle is, is offering to pay $5 million. I don't want to use bad words, so I'll just say that, in my opinion, is chicken feed. They are now trying to go at the city council members by using the appraisals that the city unfortunately uh, contracted with uh, Peggy Darnell, who is an appraiser here in, the, here in the city of Alameda. And why I say unfortunately, Peggy was given misinformation as to what this plan is all about. As Bob showed you, this plan envisions that the city will enter into a memorandum of understanding with Harbor Bay Isle. And once that memorandum of understanding is in place, then Harbor Bay Isle will go forward to get the entitlements to build houses on the Miff Albright property, which would involve getting the zoning changed, which would involve getting a, a going to the planning board and getting a plan approved. All of those things, even if the planning board says no, the appeal is to the city council, and if the city council wants this de deal, you know the city council is going to go for it. So it's sort of a sure thing if Harbor Bay Isle wants to get the zoning changed and get the plans in effect. Once they get the plans in effect, that's when they go out and market this property to another developer. And unfortunately, Peggy did not get told that the property would be sold after the entitlements were in place. She was told that it would be sold by Harbor Bay to some buyer who would have to take on the risk of getting the zoning changed and the, getting all the uh, improvements, uh, the plans approved for the building of the homes, which of course is a very risky proposition, getting a city to change its mind about zoning. But Ron Cowan doesn't have that same level of risk because Ron Cowan is going to do a deal that the city wants to do. So here's the interesting thing about the appraisals. 
she concluded that the Myth Albright land, under her assumptions, without entitlements in place, was worth something between nine and nine and a half million dollars. She did that based upon comparables, and the one comparable that she decided not to consider is the Boatworks property. And you, if you know, the Boatworks property is down on uh, Blanding and Oak. It's that big piece of property that's on the water, but it's covered with all these old dilapidated buildings that nobody knows what environmental hazards lurk within, all of which will have to be torn down before any construction can be done. That property is approximately half the size of the Mifflin. In Peggy's opinion, it's a less desirable location. It has all these buildings that have to be knocked down, but it has entitlements in place to build 182 residential units. It was sold to Pulte Homes for $30 million. If you do the analysis, if you just do simple math, that suggests that the Miff Albright land with entitlements in place for building homes is worth $60 million. So that's why I say $5 million from Ron Cowan is chicken feed. It is ridiculous to think that that is a reasonable number for the city. But if you consider that it could be sold for $60 million, then you're starting to negotiate about real money. And if we could get Ron Cowan and Harbor Bay Isle to pay the city of Alameda something on the order of $15 million, it could be $10 million to make all of the golf course improvements, not just the improvements of reconfiguring the Clark course and building a new Miff Albright course, but also improving the other nine of the Clark and also improving the nine, uh, the 18 holes of the Fry course, also re renovating the driving range, putting in new cart paths, all the things that NGF said we needed to, be, uh, needed to have done back in 2007 when they did their operational review. I'm sorry, National Golf Foundation uh, uh, is NGF. NGF was hired by the city to give its report as to what ought to be done at the golf complex. They came up with a marvelous list of all the things that needed to be done. They concluded that it would cost around seven, eight million dollars to do all of those things. Well, it's going to take an extra amount of money to build some more practice areas or a new Mill Fulbright of whatever sort reconfigure the Clark course, let's just say $10 million as a round number, we could get that out of Ron Cowan if this property indeed is worth, as I say, $60 million. This is, I, I think that, that if the city were to accept $5 million from Ron Cowan, frankly, I'm resigning from the Golf Commission because I'm, I've given up if, that, if that's the way they're going to talk about it. But if we can get the kind of money that can save our golf complex, from the only source that I believe is out there, then I think it's worthy of consideration. Everybody wants to have everything. Everybody says, "Let's." I want to keep the myth as it is. I want to keep the Clark as it is. I want to keep the Fry as it is. And nobody talks about how you can finance all that. You gotta be realistic about that. We've got to start thinking about what realistic compromises we can make and still come up with a golf complex that we can all play in for the next 80 years. That was current Golf Commissioner Jane Solwald with a clear explanation of the appraisal process as well as her views on what Rob Cohen ought to pay if the deal goes through. And again, I encourage you to stay tuned to hear Dave Needle's view on why the deal ought not to go through. Before we hear from Robert Solwald, let me remind you that this is Alameda Community Radios and News and Views, and I'm Susan Gallimore. This is our fourth Alameda Community Radio show. You can download and listen to our shows from the blog, 
alamedacommunityradio.org. If you have comments on today's show or want to suggest interesting stories for me to cover in the future, send an email to Alameda Community Radio, all one word, alamedacommunityradio at gmail.com and address it to me, Susan Gallimore. You can also leave a phone message at 510-545-8865. So again, two ways to reach us, Alameda Community Radio at gmail.com or leave a message at 510-545-8865. Next week's show takes a look at how Alameda residents propose working with the city to come up with a humane policy for the animal shelter. We talk with Friends of Alameda Animal Shelter President Nancy Evan Bianchi, as well as Chair of the Steering Committee Developing the Proposal for Alternatives, Tom Cushing. Uh, We'll also hear from veterinarians in the city, too. At this time, Alameda Community Radio is an Internet-only show, although we also publish a short piece about um, each show in the Alameda Sun. If you do not have a computer and you are over 50 years old, you can go to the Mastic Senior Center Computer Lab to listen to shows. I've left directions there for how to download shows. I've left them near the computer. They should be easy to find. They're in a plastic container so they don't get stained. But basically, it's a printed um, set of instructions for how to download shows along with um, graphics to show you how to do that. Again, if it doesn't work for you, give me a call and I'll fix that. That's 510-545-8865. So that's the directions at the Mastic Senior Center. Now, I've also talked to management at the main library about getting a sound-enabled computer there for residents who don't have a computer and are not 50 years or older. You might want to call the library managers and press them to consider this option. ACR will work with you and the library to make this happen. Now let's return to Alameda Citizens Task Force's presentation on the Gulf land swap. In the interest of time, I've edited out several other speakers and skipped to Robert Solwald. And you, again, you can email me at alamedacommunityradio at gmail.com if you want a CD of the entire event. Meanwhile, here's Bob Solwald, who did an excellent analysis, including a memorandum in 2009 titled Analysis of Rob Cohen's Purported Right to Build Additional Housing on Harbor Bay. You can download this memorandum and other documents on the land swap from our blog, alamedacommunityradio.org. Here's Bob Sewald. The background on this is when uh, Jane started getting involved with these issues a couple of years ago, she was told that the city owes Ron Cowan land on which to complete Harbor Bay. Uh, so as a result, because he won a lawsuit. Well, both of us being lawyers, we know how to get the documents uh, on these cases, so I did. The fact is, he did not win a lawsuit. Uh, there was a lawsuit he brought uh, that was settled, uh, and then the settlement was then challenged by Pete's Coffee and a citizens group, and the judge upheld the settlement uh, as legal precisely on the grounds that the city did not owe Mr. Cowan any additional land. It uh, retained its discretion that he had to go through the usual process of applying for rezoning, and the city retained its discretion to either approve or disapprove his application. And that was the crucial part of the analysis because the argument was that a city cannot, you know, cannot contract away its discretion you know, as the governing body you know, to approve development applications. So the judge construed the settlement agreement as saying, well, no, they didn't do that. And therefore, that's why the settlement agreement is legal. If the judge had said, no, the city had agreed uh, to approve what Cowan wanted, then they would have, the judge would have disapproved 
the settlement agreement because the city would have done something it wasn't allowed to do. So if you ever hear anyone, and you might hear someone, one of those five people up there sitting on the dais, say to this day, we owe Ron Cowan this land. In fact, the initial letter that his minion uh, sent to the city said we're making this proposal in fulfillment of the city's obligation to us to provide us with additional land. That is simply wrong. Uh, and, you know, I will, uh, uh, I would be happy if uh, uh, sufficient uh, financial arrangements could be made to litigate that issue because, uh, I mean, you read, read the judge's opinion, we owe Cowan nothing. Cowan had the right to apply. The city had no obligation to approve. In fact, Cowan did apply to have the North Loop property rezoned to residential, and he was turned down. So he has no legal argument to force the city to do anything. The uh, original development agreement talks about the total number of houses up to 3,200 on the Harbor Bay property. But it, no, the original agreement nowhere says, that, I mean, what it says is the Harbor Bay property. But it is all subject to uh, zoning approvals and approval by the city. There's nothing in that agreement that says the city is obligated to file, in the development agreement, that the city is obligated to find him additional land if he's not been able to build the 3,200 houses on the land he already owns. Uh, this is during the question and answer period that Bob joined the group, and a member of the audience asked Bob Sewald if a change in ownership meant there had to be a land swap. Well, that yes, there is a uh, an or- a city ordinance uh, that says you can't sell or lease parkland, absent a vote of the, uh, of the people, and so to get around that prohibition, rather than sell it, it's a swap. I mean, the, the ordinance would permit. It talks about you could swap it for equivalent uh, property with an equivalent use. If you or I wanted to uh, come along and say, we'd like to develop the MIF, then that ordinance would kick in and we would be in trouble. I'm Joe Van Winkle. So a couple things. First of all, I want to thank ACT, is that right, Um, for this transparency. Um, Prior to this, when I was trying to find out information, the city held three closed sessions. Um, to discuss price and terms and negotiate on the MIF property. So that's where we were a couple of few years ago. To the point about um, where will the money come from or what are the other games in town, the city has received three unsolicited letters of interest from bona fide golf management companies. Bellows Golf Management bid on this, um, and since you know we've now learned that essentially Dork and Cowan and uh, Kemper were kind of working in the back room together anyway, so I'm not sure how valid that whole bid process was, and Jane has some suspicions about whether it should have been awarded to Kemper or not. But regardless, we had a second bidder. We've also now received letters from uh, Greenway Golf. They manage Stevenson Ranch. If any of you have played that, it's a very beautiful golf course out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know how they get anybody to go there and play it, but um, they do a great job um, and manage a number of courses. And from a large company, a company larger than Kemper, called Billy Casper Golf, I have one simple question. Why doesn't the city return these calls? Why don't they get a hold of these people who have spent the time? The answer answer that has been given when that question is asked to Lisa Goldman is that the, uh, the resolution that city council passed like two years ago 
directing staff to begin negotiations for a long-term lease, said begin negotiations with Kemper. And her interpretation means that that resolution ties her hands, uh, that she can only negotiate with Kemper and is not allowed to talk to any of these other three companies who are expressing an interest in the course until city council passes a resolution telling her different. Doug DeHaan suggested that the city should issue a new RFP to seek input from all other golf companies that have expressed interest as well as anybody else out in the world who might be interested in a better RFP than what was put out initially. And Lisa Goldman put that idea down as saying, I'm much too busy dealing with the budget. I can't possibly deal with this now. Okay, that's as much of the ACT meeting that I'll air. Again, that meeting, Land Grab or Fair Plan, a public forum examining facts behind the golf swap, who benefits, who pays. It was organized by Alameda Citizens Task Force. ACT's mission is to protect the quality of life for Alamedans by promoting open government, advocating fiscal responsibility, and analyzing critical comments on uh, city issues and encouraging community involvement in city government. You can visit ACT's website, um, Alameda citizenstaskforce.org and learn more about what they do and how you can get involved. Now, as I mentioned, I invited Dave Needle to express his views about this golf land swap. Dave was not part of the original presentation that ACT put on, but I, I thought that it was important to hear from him. Dave's, uh, Dave Needle is an engineer who's been involved in the airport noise abatement issues on the past, and he's been watching this land swap issue for years. I talked to him on the phone, and here's what he had to say. Ron Cowan, for a long time, has wanted the golf course property. There are several changes he wants to make to his pieces of property on Harbor Bay, and getting that piece of the golf course lets him move forward with a large plan. The, there are several golf courses out there, but we're only talking about one specific course, right? We're talking about the piece of property on which uh, the par 3 sits, the Miff Albright course. That's public property. It's public um, land, parkland, and the city doesn't just get to sell it easily or give it away or do anything with it without some significant public input. However, if that land is traded for other land, if there's a swap, then the rules are different. The rules are easier. And so they, Cowan and the city have been playing this game of calling it a swap. Um, there's plenty of information out there that makes it very clear that it's no, there's no valid reason for a swap. Uh, Cowan, for a while, was trying to put 104 homes on a small piece of business park land. There is no legal basis whatsoever for him being allowed to put homes on a commercial piece of property. And, in fact, there are many documents that say explicitly uh, and, I'll, and I'll quote the words, under no circumstances should homes be placed on this property. And there are many reasons. There's closeness to the airport. There are a couple of other reasons. However, um, HBIA and Ron Cowan have put together a package of what makes it look like there is a valid right for them to put it there, an entitlement. It's just not true. Uh, there was a lawsuit against a settlement um, regarding the 104 homes on that property. And even though the uh, plaintiffs lost the lawsuit and the city was allowed to go forward with their settlement plan, the lawsuit did not indicate that he had a right to homes on that property, only that he had a right to ask for a zoning change. He asked for that zoning change. The planning board turned him down, and that was the end of it. But 
HBIA and some members of the city council. HBIA Harbor, Harbor Bay. Bay Isle Associates. I think. Thanks. Okay. Um, his company that runs that section of his of his property business. Um, some members of the city council and HBIA and Ron Cowan continue to pretend that they won the lawsuit allowing them the validity of an entitlement to have homes on that property, which is totally false. You can read the judge's reports. You can read the analysis of the judge's reports. You can read the actual documents themselves. I was a party to that lawsuit. Yes, I have read the documents. Yes, I have understood it completely well, as does every single person on the city council. And where are the documents to be found? Um, they're all on the web. They're all public documents. In the city um, of Alameda website? The city. I don't know if they're on the web in the city website. Okay. I know that they're on the web as part of the court case. Okay. I don't have in my hands right now the address to go look. Okay. Maybe you can send it to me, and I'll make sure that we link to it from our blog. Yes, I will. That'd be great. The, um, it's very clear that everyone on the city council knows that there's no validity to the swap. There's no validity to the entitlement. But it appears to be the only legal way to give their buddy Ron Cowan this wonderfully valuable piece of Alameda public park property. Uh, without going through the normal process of either a vote or something else that has to happen to get that piece of property. Now, I've heard that there's a $5 million payment somewhere along the line. Um, this is part of a plan and a, a process that Ron has gone through before several times with the city. He makes a deal that's a mediocre deal. He promises some cash. He, the cash is often dependent on a future event. And in this case, it's dependent on a future event with that property. So the cash doesn't come right away. Um, the cash may or may not need to be earmarked for its use, and so the city council may choose to do anything they want with it, as opposed to what he's promising that they will do. But in the end, it's a distraction. The property is worth $25, $35 million. A $5 million payment for a $30 million piece of property is a laugh. And everyone involved knows it, but they're trying to do it anyway. Why are they? I mean, why, what entitles Ron Cohen to think that he can do this in the city? Um, he's done it several times before and gotten away with it. Um, he's done it because he does good things to some city council members that help them in their political career. In this particular case, he's an incredibly large contributor to uh, Marie Gilmore's uh, re-election campaign. We know that in the past he has helped the prior mayor in political aspirations that she had had. Um, and they've been t buddies for a long time. I say buddies, there's probably a better word for it than that. Um, and so they have whatever deal they've got in the back room. Uh, I don't know the details of whatever private deal that they may have, but they are clearly skirting the law and trying to give him what he's asking for, as they have in the past with other properties. Now, Dave, it's public record at this point, but you were part of a meeting that happened with the city council people and business people. Um, Many years ago, um, a meeting, a private meeting, was uh, called between two members of the city council and about 10 of the business owners in the business park where the so-called swap property exists. These business owners were adjacent to the swap property, and were very much against having the homes built there for their reasons. And they were valid reasons and good. Um, I invited myself into this meeting because had they succeeded in a path that they were taking, 
it would have impacted the airport noise abatement mechanism that protects the citizens of Alameda from severe airport noise. Uh, I was wearing the hat of airport monitor. Uh, I was uh, co-chair of the city's airport operations committee at the time. And it was my job to make sure that we didn't go down a path that would have severely damaged the airport noise mitigations. Uh, and that was my purpose at that meeting. At that meeting, what they chose to do was suggest that since Ron Cowan is someday going to get the golf course anyway. That's a quote. Uh, um, pretty well, much, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, it's, he, he will continue uh, to fight for it, and the citizens will grow tired of the fight, and he's going to get it anyway. So as long as he's going to get it anyway, why don't we try to make the best deal we can? And that was the premise of the meeting. What they decided at that meeting, and it may have been pre-thought because they came out with it immediately um, from uh, Marie Gilmore, uh, was that why don't they swap this uh, questionable property in the business park for the property uh, on the golf course? And then on the business park property, they could build some soccer fields and some other things. And why is it questionable? Um, questionable is perhaps not quite the right word. Its business property can't be rezoned for um, residential. Uh, nobody wants to build anything business on it. Okay. And so it was unclear what would be sensible to do with that property. Okay. Thank you. Um, thanks. Um, they, they agreed at that point that Ron had already said he would not, I say not, be paying for the soccer fields. He would have at that time provided $1 million to fix the roads uh, in front of the business park, but nothing whatsoever for the soccer fields. Um, and he would be getting this valuable golf course property, um, and the city would get ownership of this relatively non-useful piece of business property in the middle of the business park. Then the suggestion was that if that whole process seemed agreeable to the business owners, and it was, um, they needed one of the business owners to come to a city council meeting and suggest this, because if, in fact, it came from the city council, the citizens would be outraged, because they would know it was a deal between the city council and Cowan, which had happened many times before. Um, as part of that meeting, I was sworn to secrecy to not talk about it until such time that it became public. But it's become public, so it's okay to talk about it. The, at the city council meeting where they were going to do this little play acting, um, one of the business members got up and made the suggestion in the terms of, and I'm quoting a little bit, and you can look at it on the tape of the city council meeting, oh, I have an idea. Why don't we, let's say, swap? this business property with this golf course property. You've shown in the past that the golf course isn't making any money, which of course is an untrue statement and part of the overall plan to get the golf, golf course swap. The golf course makes money. Um, and anyone who looks at the records can see clearly that it does. Um, the, uh, and so he suggested that why don't we make this swap and then everybody wins. And the mayor at the time, Beverly Johnson, said, yeah, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. Why don't we think that one through and figure out what we might do? Uh, that's when I had already put in a speaker slip so I could then say this is totally untrue and report the facts as they had occurred. But Council Member Doug DeHaan beat me to it. He was so irate at the outright falsehood of the entire process that he stood up and angrily yelled, this is just untrue. You can't do this. You must stop. 
And the reason he was saying this was in the closed session meeting just before this council meeting, uh, the mayor and the other council members were working out the details of the swap. So everyone on the council knows it's not true. Everyone on the council knows it's a farce. Everyone on the council knows that it's a plan just to get Cal on the golf course. It takes money away from the city, time where we can't afford hospital and we can't afford police and we can't afford fire, and it essentially gives it to their buddy, Ron Cowan. All the other parts of the story, whether or not there's enough money to fix up the par 3, whether or not there's a traffic problem here or there, those are all distractions. The only thing that can actually cause this to come to an end is to break this complete bogus fallacy that there is an entitlement to a swap. And this is going to be decided October 4th, the City Hall meeting. Um, that's possibly true. Uh, many, many times these things are brought up to the City Council meeting and something happens and they don't get decided. Mm, okay. um, the worst thing that happens, which they've done before, is right before the City Council meeting, so there's no time to make any of the Brown Act public notice requirements, um, they commit a, uh, uh, a settlement. Uh, in the back room, the council members and the Cowan group settle. They come to an agreement where they're not going to require any more public input and the monies should be okay and the city's not going to do anything illegal, and they come up with a settlement agreement. And that settlement agreement, in general, allows Cowan what he wants but has things that are bad for the city. Hmm. Then what happens is someone sues to break the settlement agreement, as our group did several years ago. In that lawsuit, they wind up getting a new settlement agreement, generally in which Cowan gets even more. Uh, we've learned our lesson from that failure before. Hmm. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward plan. He's done it several times. We've already done the analysis on this one. Um, that, that being, uh, he's proclaiming that the land is worth less than $10 million. The total deal is less than $10 million. Hmm. Um, if he gets a settlement agreement uh, with the city, to go forward with his essentially $10 million land swap. And then that settlement agreement is challenged and broken uh, by a successful lawsuit. He then gets to countersue that he has lost the value of that land. At that time, they will do a proper valuation of the land and discover that, oh my, they were wrong. The land's actually worth $30 million. So now instead of him getting $10 million or $5 million or whatever the original settlement agreement might have been for, he's entitled to the full value of the land that was taken away from him, quote unquote, mm. in this battle against the city. Mm. So he wins in both sides. The only thing that can stop it is to actually get the city to stop saying that they believe this to be his entitlement. And what can ordinary residents do? Um, essentially, be present at the meetings. The thing that has won us so many victories uh, with the city council and the planning board in the past is to stuff the room. Uh, we, many times we've had overflow into the secondary room, overflow into the halls. Um, that's what's needed. You need several hundred people, all of which are willing to put in a speaker slip. You don't have to actually speak. Um, but put in a lot, put in the speaker slips, get up, and just say you oppose if that's all you want to do. Uh, some people give great stories as to why it's totally bogus. Uh, but the city council has to be overwhelmed with the knowledge that every citizen in this city recognizes that they are cheating us.
Dave, so you'll send me the links to documents and we can put them on the web. Uh-huh. Is there anything else you think residents should know? Um, I would suggest avoiding the distractions. Um, instead of having a two-hour discussion as to whether or not there's enough money to water the back part of the golf course under the New Deal, ignore that. Ignore the distractions. Stick to the only thing that has any actionable result, and that is prevent the deal, and prevent the deal by making it very clear that the city won't get away with its lie about there being an entitlement. Thank you. I appreciate your time. You are most welcome. Now, Dave Needle sent me documents he referenced in the segment, and I've put them on the, on the Alameda Community Radio.org blog, and you can download them from there. Some of them are quite large, so be prepared, but um, I think they're important documents, and I've linked them all up there, and you're welcome to look them over to get more acquainted with the, uh, the, the entire topic. It is complex, and it's gone on for years. Uh, that is news and views for the week. Visit our blog, alamedacommunityradio.org, to learn more about Alameda Community Radio and then also listen to our shows. We're a non-profit organization and we do need donations to build up our shows and our listenership. Our fiscal sponsor is Media Alliance and you can go to the blog, alamedacommunityradio.org, to make a donation. If you're interested in having your own show, visit the blog to learn how to do that. And comments are always welcome. So are ideas for shows. Email alamedacommunityradio at gmail.com or leave a phone message at 510-545-8865. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Join us again next week on Alameda Community Radio.